Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we are super excited because this week we got the opportunity to sit down and speak with Michael Rezel, who, if you're a member of the R-Collapse subreddit, you may know better as user Let's Talk UFOs. He's one of the senior moderators of the sub, and we wanted to get his perspective on the subreddit R-Collapse, as well as talk to him about Paul Trafurka's ladder of collapse awareness. And I do want to mention that I was a big doofus and forgot to turn on one of my mics at the beginning of the episode. So as a fair warning, Kellen and I's audio is pretty bad for about the first four minutes or so, but it cleans up well after that. Enjoy the interview. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Craig. So we've got, uh, this is Let's Talk UFOs, the infamous, I would say, uh, Reddit moderator for our collapse. How long have you been a moderator for? I think it's over a little over two years now, if I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. And correct me if I'm wrong, but are you the are you the senior most moderator currently? No, technically Babbles. Oh, well, Babbles is not technically. We're we're all at different stages of active investment or activity in terms of how much we mod actually mod or touch the queue. Babbles has been around the longest, and Reddit has a built-in hierarchy to how moderation is organized that you can't functionally get around. the The older a moderator is, the more leverage they have. Essentially, you can remove anyone below you uh, or, or newer in age. So we try to get around that by uh, having a flat structure. So we we can't, I mean, someone could, uh, Babbles could still, you know, remove me and delete everything, right? But the 
the understanding that we've all come to is that a flat structure is far more conductive to the subreddit and moderating and everything that we want to achieve on a regular basis. And so that, and that's been kind of a gradual transition transition that we've had to take intentionally since it's just not built in that way. Yeah. I mean, in any hierarchical structure, you're going to have some power dynamics there. And so it's nice to know that you try to make it flat to eliminate some of that. Um, Babel, he's definitely, I shouldn't say he, I don't know if it's he or she, um, is not super active as far as like visibility. I don't see them comment very often, Um, but you certainly are. You're kind of out there in front of everything. Is that by design? He's So he's much more active in the Discord. We're both also moderators of the Collapse Discord, which is actually a separate, there's a separate set of moderators and structure and rules there. it, It is independent they can make their own decisions independent of the subreddit but obviously there's a lot of overlap i even i've taken a little bit of a step back I guess, even in the last few months as i'm focusing more on specific resources for misinformation or covid related resources and some rule deliberations there's a lot of meta aspects that go into moderating whether it's community events you want to organize amas or uh, improve the bots and automated tools or just the documentation for other moderators or even finding new moderators and trying to sort of acculturate and acclimate them to moderating because it's there's there's a, a, a revolving door I would say there's a pretty standard burnout of anywhere from 12 months to two years no one really I think can do it forever it's kind of not sustainable so the longer that I've done it the more I focused on kind of the meta aspects, I'm not, I'm actually not active in the queue at all right now, but there are plenty of people that are, and I still try to chime in when I can. And I, we try to monitor each other's activity to see who's doing the most work in case we need to bring on more people or just help people out or encourage them to take a break or, you know, whatever is necessary. We have a lot of tools that make that a bit easier. So this is a really general question, but what is it like being a moderator on the R Collapse subreddit and what's your motivation for doing that? So the only thing I have to compare to is another subreddit that I moderate, which is actually similar in size, R UFOs. It's just focused on ufology. It's functionally the same. The communities are quite different. Every Everything is distinct or determined by the nature of the subject and the rules the types of content that you allow and the the user base reddit reddit in, in my experience really only has a very loose superficial sense of community people build a familiarity with specific usernames and memes and language but it's the actual density of relationships between individual users it's kind of rare um and most of the time it's driven by some sort sort of type of friction disparate viewpoints or controversial aspects of that particular subject or phenomenon moderating is a little weird because you're you are immediately and always aware of all of the negative or worst aspects of the conversation and the on the context whether it's spam or trolls or people just having a bad day or or misunderstanding what they can or can post a lot of it is dealing with those things. And ideally, if you're doing a great job, people don't necessarily even know unless you're also putting in a large amount of additional work to try to make all of the work that you are doing transparent and and maintaining 
a very strong conduit or in dialogue with the community so that there are a lot of opportunities for people to discuss how you're doing things and why you're doing them. I I got invited to moderate this subreddit after I made Let's Talk Collapse.com. So I in 2017 I was suffering in a pretty big vacuum of having an initial understanding of collapse, but not really having the level or amount of dialogue that I wanted surrounding it. And I realized one of my biggest gripes with the subreddit at the time were the incredibly frequent and redundant questions that people would ask every other week of what is the best book related to collapse? What is the best podcast? And a bunch of other ones that I thought I could potentially eliminate or at the very least provide a shared collaborative resource if I could just collate and process all of that information. If, you know, if, if someone asks the same question of a community 50 times and you just look through the hundreds of responses, you can get an, a pretty good idea of what the commonly understood, not necessarily the best, the most commonly understood answers are to those those questions. And so I just went through that methodically. And then once I had enough externalized, I would email people that I thought I could approach that had some understanding of it. And I would say, hey, does this look right? And then once I got that to a point where I thought, okay, I think this is pretty right, I shared that as, and I proposed it as a wiki. I said, hey, this sub needs a wiki because we need to kind of grease the runway of understanding, kind of like what you guys are doing to get people to a point where they can have more sophisticated or mature conversations about the subject, especially because it's so, it, it's just so difficult to have them. It's the mo it's the scariest, biggest, most complicated thing out there. It's the notion of our collective mortality and the end of progress, all, all these other ways of looking at it. So they pinged me pretty much right away and said, hey, do you want to be a moderator? And that was kind of their approach at the time was to pick people and approach them. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't strictly hierarchical at the time, but I mean, it wasn't necessarily as organized either. And so I just went into my OCD documentation mode and methodically went through everything that I thought I could improve. And over the course of a good year, kind of I, I just really enjoyed it. And when you have a process too for bringing people into that kind of team or, or a, it's like a sub-community because the moderators, like we have our own kind of sub-community and relationships. Just there were a lot of feedback loops of positive dialogue and relationships that came out of that. And so uh, that made it far more of a positive experience that would be negative. Even though there are numerous challenges and events that I could cite that were that are just, they're very unpredictable and challenging and difficult and stressful and are just uh, their own can of worms that you just can't predict uh, in terms of moderating, whether it's some controversial posts or a controversial guest or a particular rule that you didn't predict was going to work a certain way or things that you do or don't allow. Everyone uh, disagrees sometimes very adamantly that you don't in ways that you wouldn't expect or could or could control or ways that you're not comfortable kind of conceding about being wrong about. So we're just trying to find the best consensus is kind of like a, uh, the way I think about it. Is I'm just, I'm kind of just trying to curate the space and keep it as accessible and free of bad incentives, bad actors and bad information as much as possible and push, push in both directions. So like you're trying to minimize the bad information or things that don't contribute and then elevate the things that do. The nature of Reddit is actually such that it wants to elevate the lowest effort content and and people's brains. Like they're looking for the shortest, quickest, simplest thing to upvote. That's just the nature of the beast. So, th th so there's a lot of opportunities. It's like it's never there's never like a normal day, and I anyone could spend an infinite amount of time trying to think about particular aspects of it and the nuances. 
vary a bit depending on the community. Collapses got a wide range of uh, various extremes, whether you have people that are very, like they feel very strongly about something like antinatalism or ecofascism or gun ownership. Um, so trying to balance all those perspectives, I don't know, it's not like a, there's no perfect science. It's a lot of times we're just kind of throwing things at the wall or having very long continual conversations to try to figure out those things. There's a lot of stigma around moderation on Reddit. It feels like there's always people that are very um, sort of contrarians to anything that a moderator says. They always want to pick fights. There's this idea of like there's this power struggle and moderators are just out to, you know, censor people and things like that. How do you balance the the desire to let people speak their mind freely with maintaining the quality of the sub? There are some pretty distinct nuances related to specific subjects, but if I'm talking about it in a generalized way, there's there has to be a sort of a, a agreed-upon set of principles or approaches or definitions for what allowable discussion is. Reddit has its own lines in the sand in terms of what content is allowed. The most complicated ones and the most relevant ones currently are the ones related to misinformation and specifically around COVID, not necessarily climate change. We don't, we don't, we get people that are climate deniers or just in denial of specific aspects of the science or have very different interpretations of it. But those are usually easier to assuage or deal with. I think the, the unfortunate reality is that the path of least resistance for any moderator is to just remove something that they don't agree with. And that doesn't work in the aggregate when you're dealing with a complex subject that is constantly evolving and you want everyone to equally be approachable with new information. I just, so I just spent, I just spent a, a couple months working on a, a particular guide specifically just dealing with misinformation. And I think it pertains exactly to what you're talking about. Cause trying to answer the question of what is what, what do we allow? What is the best strategy? Is there a granular strategy? Ideally, there's a strategy that isn't just this thing can stay up there and everyone perceives us as approving of it. And we remove this thing because we don't agree with it. A lot of people disagree about even what's on topic. I think there are subreddits like our science where they have, thou they have hundreds and hundreds of moderators that just moderate comments. Most subreddits don't do this. Even on our collapse, there's well over 1,500 comments every day. It's, it's completely unrealistic to expect a team of 15 people to review all of those comments, much less do it consistently. And that doesn't mean we couldn't try to become something like our science. It's just such a, they're sort of a paragon, you know, our, our ask historians. Uh, that sub is so heavily moderated that it almost doesn't look as much like the other subreddits that I, you know, you could compare it to. There's not as much open discussion like as there is in somewhere like our futurology where you got tens of thousands of people just posting all kinds of things and they're trying to deal with things more in the aggregate. So it's a very important question. The, the platform itself is financially incentivized, right? So for example, their, their response to a subreddit like no new normal in light of the sort of activism of other subreddits, I think is very reactionary. It's very much about placating whatever the mood of the dominant or most the squeakiest wheel of the user base is at that particular moment based on the reasonings they use to censor that, that particular subreddit and a bunch of the other ones. Even their blacklist policy for domains and links isn't 
public. So there are a number of domains and websites that they censor that you don't know unless you try to post those. And there are subreddits that try to track them, and but they're not always relevant to every community. Like you wouldn't necessarily know that ivermeta.com is censored unless you were trying to post it, right? And there's no there's no transparency in terms of why. I can't necessarily give you a good reason why. I don't know. It's just a website that talks about the scientific data related to ivermectin. I can I can imagine why because it's a very controversial and contested subject in the media. But um, you know, in terms of the nuances of why something like that that lists a bunch of papers is uh, censored. You, you're, there's a lot of feeling in the dark on both ends. There's not a lot of there's not there's not a lot of opportunities for direct dialogue between Reddit admins who are completely different than moderators. And there's a small there's a small portion of users who think they're the same, and so they think that you have these godlike powers and you are just making money or out there to placate the Reddit gods, but you're not. You're just kind of volunteers. So trying to educate users too is one part of that, but it's. It is very ongoing. I think the, the collapse is a very data can can be a very data driven subject. I think it, it encapsulates a lot of aspects of just our uh, individual and collective experience. So trying to draw particular lines in the sand is very difficult in terms of what is on or off topic, or what is permissible or should be censored. So I did. I you, you could go to. We have a claims page. Um, uh, it's linked in the sidebar right now. If you if you looked at it, you could see kind of the best solution. I think is a collaborative resource where the community, the community at large, has input on what is and isn't allowable and how you address specific claims. Because not every claim is provably false. Some things are just incomplete, or they have very significant implications in terms of geopolitics. Like if you say COVID was a bioweapon, right? That's that's not provable, but it's not provably false, but it has very significant implications in terms of how we view that country or those people or that particular pandemic. So trying to address that notion, like you, you would want to understand, well, uh, is, are there any people that have spoken to why it is or isn't that and give context and encourage people to have higher quality conversations about it? Because it doesn't mean someone I don't think someone shouldn't be able to say that in the context of if they're talking about someone who's, for example, had a background in the Department of Defense and understands bioweapons and wants to comment on, well, maybe these are reasons why it isn't, right? Um, again, most of the time you get the, I, I think you get a lot of discussion just takes the path of least resistance. People are just going to, they're going to go with their intuition and just say it's a bioweapon and write one sentence and that's, it doesn't add any nuance. And so then if you remove that, sometimes you get someone that's really frustrated and you have to kind of address, I'm really, I'm really drilling down into one particular example, but the second part of that is to just cre give moderators the tools and the bandwidth to deal with those in a consistent and patient way. So, and that's like, that's something that just happens day to day because it can be very satisfying to remove something that you don't agree with. So if, even if you're just trying to moderate or examine every action other moderators are taking, most subreddits don't do that. They only deal with the things that create noise or when users come back and, and they just start spamming, spamming mod mail and complaining or, or being really frustrated and sometimes legitimately so. And sometimes not. So more often than they're not. And so that drains your sort of compassion for the user base. And what I've seen is the there's like a idle trend towards othering or uh, looking down upon the user base. And so you have to take active steps that keep you connected to that and humble and patient and, you know, address the real the actual problematic contexts, give people the tools and understanding to do that consistently and effectively. You know, I hear all that and it makes my head spin just a little bit. 
I can only imagine all the challenges in trying to strike the right balance there in how you moderate those conversations. It makes me think about the fact that, from my understanding, our collapse has had a big uptick in new users or new uh, members of the subreddit. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what has that done to the R collapse subreddit, having all these people who are new to the community or, or new to the topic of collapse? So the most superficial metric of a subreddit is how many subscribers it has, which is just people that click the sub button. And then that means that shows up in their personal feed. And some people don't even use their personal feed. They just browse our all, right? Those aren't the same people as the actual active users. If you look in the sidebar, you can see how many people are act like they're actually looking at it. And I don't have metrics for how that changes over time, actually. That would be, a, I think, a more accurate measure because Reddit, you have to understand Reddit has been growing on its own. And so I think the only, the only actual rate of increase you could measure is how much the subreddit's rate of growth is higher than the overall growth of Reddit necessarily. It doesn't mean that more people aren't being added, but it's, there are a lot of different ways to measure. The other, the other thing is that based on some superficial studies over Reddit's history, 99, over 99% of people don't, they don't do anything. They're just there. They don't comment. They don't post. They don't even upvote or downvote. They're not, they're not actively participating. They're just observing. In addition to that, there is a very highly concentrated user base that is the most active. So it's like, there's such a small pocket of people that determine the context, even though well, I think once you reach a critical mass of like thousands, it's enough people that it's nuanced. You're like, you're not going to see the same people or you wouldn't necessarily notice if you're looking at it, at it on an average date, especially with a subject that is, is a global and biggest collapse. There have been plenty of sort of milestones as the, the subreddit reaches a certain number of subscribers. And I've, I've encountered a lot of anxiety isn't the right word, but like a sort of reticence or there's there's a sweating involved on the moderator in when people see the community reach these kind of thresholds because they're, they're indications that it's, you know, it's becoming bigger and bigger. I guess I haven't ever felt like it's unmanageable. There are a lot of giant levers that you can pull if for some reason there's an actual massive influx. And I, there, there hasn't actually been, in my experience, huge unmanageable influxes that I felt couldn't be assuaged by or dealt with through other means. It's difficult to predict what type of events would necessarily push people into this particular container of conversation. Because something, for example, like the George Floyd protests, which were a big spike, there's still, there's still very regional aspects to that. And it's very contained to the United States, even though uh, you know, I would say about 50% of the subreddit is based in the United States. It's it's rare that there's a truly global event that makes suddenly flips some light bulb in everyone's brains that they suddenly need to start thinking about complex systems and you know the end of growth. Uh, <laughs> there is, I think, there's a there's there's a steady uptick because we are we are seeing a lot of gradual pressures play out, and there is a lot of overlap between this particular subreddit and a few other ones. It just the 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 best way to address it, I think, is to just speak directly to the people at the most uh, preliminary stages of awareness and then try to elevate them as quickly and effectively as possible so that people don't become frustrated with them when they do inevitably want to ask the same question that we've been asking, you know, for decades or, or they just are kind of floundering. Like there's just suffering in that vacuum and they don't really know, they can't really gauge how relevant uh, or how to reach for that understanding. So they're just asking the most basic or sharing the most basic types of content, superficial superficial observations of collapse. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you describe that vacuum, sort of that flailing, because um, I think we've all been through that. And you know, you mentioned you have been through that, and there are plenty of people who who are newly introduced to the idea of collapse. They're starting to sort of get their mind very loosely wrapped around what what it is that's being referenced and and the complexity of it all. And that's hard. That's hard when, especially you're looking at a subreddit that has so many maybe seemingly random posts. You know, one day you're seeing just a ton of COVID conversation. And then the next day you're seeing a bunch of conversation around peak oil or energy crises. And then, uh, you know, it's always changing. And so I can see how that's hard for somebody. And I think that perfectly actually describes sort of our target audience thus far with the podcast is to try and find those people who are aware enough to know there's an issue, but don't know how to organize that that thought in their mind. And I think the sub the sub is there as a great way for people to be able to ask questions and interact. So I just want to say thank you for your work as a moderator. Um, like Kellen said, what a complex and difficult thing to do. And with no real uh, material return for you, I guess my last question um, in regards to moderation and, and the subreddit is what what's in it for you? Why do you keep going? Um, and how long do you think you'll keep moderating for? Yeah, I don't think about it in terms of timelines. I think if I if I tried to proactively commit to a time frame, I would be doing myself a disservice since the, the subject as a whole. Also, moderation requires a very consistent and thorough monitoring of how you're doing and your own sort of emotional and mental resilience in dealing with the various things that they entail. The, the subject itself is kind of, I mean, there's there's a whole subreddit just for support to talk about the subject, right? Uh, there, are, there aren't many subjects that have that. And, th- and there's a disclaimer in the sidebar, right? There's, it's, you know, it's difficult to, to measure, but we, I just, we have to assume and we try to be aware that there are people that just, they don't really come out of an awareness of it. They don't have a positive outcome. They don't reach a level of understanding or ability to cope or it affects them so negatively that there are spirals that only go downward. So, it, but it's very difficult to measure in the context of your own life uh, on like a second to second basis because you don't necessarily know what might trigger you or what might be frustrating or how you might handle criticism from someone who is also a moderator about something you're really passionate about and they're having a bad day and telling you you're stupid because X, Y, or Z. So it sounds challenging and complicated. I think I would be bored if I wasn't doing something that was challenging and complicated, which is just, I mean, it's the most superficial form of like benefit. The subject just has such broad implications. It's trying to understand the connections between how we got to where we are as a species and where we're going and what's, what is left of where we can go and what does that look like? And then everything that comes out of that in terms of uh, resiliency and what's really important to the human experience so that we can elevate that rather than do what it looks like we're doing right now, which is just ravaging every natural context that's available through a variety of means that we're both consciously and unconsciously aware of based in, I think, desires, motivations, or systems that we don't necessarily and all understand how we're driven by. So there's just a huge opportunity to talk about all of the mistakes that humans make, right? And what got them to this particular tipping point, right? I don't have an academic background and I don't have, I don't really have access to 
a, a more formal academic community. So the most sensible thing to do is just go where the most people are. The subreddit is the largest community for discussing the subject online. And it also directly funnels into the Discord, which is the largest community for, I would say, discussing it in real time in voice. So I actually, I don't comment a lot on the subreddit outside of a moderator capacity. Very, very rarely, I'd say, if you look at my post history. And that's been true for quite a long time, even before I was a moderator. I enjoy talking about and, you know, deliberating the aspects of moderation. But when it comes to actually talking about collapse, I would much rather do it in voice with anyone that will have me or that, you know, I, you know, we can, we can have a shared dialogue with, and I get quite a bit out of that specific context and kind of trying to invest in it. So it's been especially true over the course of the pandemic since more people have been online. But I think due to the particular density and complexity of this subject, people benefit the most from having the opportunity and or to a limited extent being forced to externalize and articulate whatever level of understanding they're currently at or they're grappling with about it and getting a sort of human exchange to try to parse through some of the issues because I don't, it, it just, it's, it's very dangerous and difficult to try to do entirely by yourself. And uh, yeah, I think so much of such a big part of what we're suffering from is sort of lack of connection, not just with natural world with each other. And so that's just the most, that's just the simplest sort of shortcut to kind of understanding that. And the, the natural position, I guess one correlation I've drawn in my life is that I kind of end up cleaning up after the party. And um, like I do this in a lot of other places, but like that's what moderating kind of is, is you're trying to stay sober and sane enough to keep the banners on the wall and the exit signs turned on so that everyone can get around. And yeah, I've been doing that for better or worse in a lot of different contexts. Monitoring is just one of them. So, you know, you referred to sort of that spiraling and the effects that learning about collapse can have on mental health. And I think everyone comes up against that at some point, having to face sort of the, the seriousness of the conversation. And it can be life altering for a lot of people. The topic of today's episode that we wanted to focus on was sort of this ladder of awareness. It was something that was written up by Paul Trefurka. And Paul actually describes how he himself went through the same process in a pretty severe way. He said um, there was a while there where he didn't know if he wanted to continue living because, because it was so hard for him um, and was able to find some peace. And we'll talk a little bit um, later on in the episode about the different types of coping that he that he refers to um, as sort of this this inner versus outer coping strategy. But how would you describe, as far as what you know about Paul, is he is he primarily a writer? Um, he he claims, from what I know, he claims he's not a Buddhist. He's not technically a Buddhist, but he follows a lot of like Buddhist spirituality principles and things like that. That's how he's found his peace. Um, what else do you know about Paul? Maybe before we jump in and talk about his his ladder of awareness. It's been a while since I read a lot of Paul's work. He wrote it. He wrote a lot of that. I feel like fairly early on, like 2012 and earlier, which was says a lot about the type of awareness that he had that early on, where he drew it from. My limited direct experience is through Michael Dowd had him on his posthume conversations, and I think that's the actually only interview that I've seen with him in any recent capacity. And I know I think the only reason he. He did that one because him and Michael have some sort of relationship. And Mike, Michael has a huge affinity for his work, like I think a lot of people do in the Collapse community. He, I got the sense that it there's still 
a deep mark in terms of his journey through that awareness that is difficult for me to summarize because <laughs> I'm not Paul, but he just seemed to have such a incredibly large awareness from his heart. And I, I, I feel like I've seen similar people who have reacted in different ways. I think Debo Zarco is another good example. Just the sort of, like there's a fire in that woman that I think comes from the exact same place uh, and just over a lifetime of her experiences, seeing the effects that humanity has put forth on the natural world requires a sort of mental contortioning of or confronting of your own humanity and what you're willing to then engage with in terms of human systems. Because so many of our systems are just in direct opposition to life. And we are collectively, I think, so oblivious to that, that the invitations to invest in those systems are so frequently and insistently given that becomes very frustrating and in, in a lot of ways adversarial because it's not easy to check out or step step away uh, from a lot of those and not just incur a lot of friction and strife and confrontation or just suffering because you're in some ways you're leaving the, the human community you know you're not going full kaczynski you know or trying to think of a better example of someone living in the woods um <laughs> yeah like nomad man uh or anarcho-primitivist but i i feel those conflicts all the time it's uh what are the benefits of me you know, continuing to elevate these contexts in a digital format, right? Versus how do I balance my investments in physical space and living relationships when there is a potentially infinite benefit to broadcasting and expressing these concepts to a global audience? Because there's just, there's just so many people that aren't even at stage one or, or actually they're, they're at stage one, which is, you know, just dead asleep, right? Very difficult, I think, to manage. Yeah, he um in that interview with with Michael Dowd, um he talks about the pain, well, he talks about the suffering and he, he mentions that he felt like he was suffering in that time. He wasn't in pain because he said his life was good, everything was good, but he was suffering in that he was basically awoken to all the things that you were just speaking about, this this realization that all of the systems that we engage in um are in direct opposition to life in so many ways. And so if any of our listeners, you know, if if this is something that you're currently dealing with, if you're having mental health issues due to the idea of collapse, I do recommend looking into to Paul's work. Um, we'll link to his blog and his website in the description of this episode. But, um, you know, he he found his his way back to he, what he described as semi-normalcy <laughs> in his in his happiness and his enjoyment of life. And. You know, you might not find it in the same way that Paul did, but he gives some really great examples and some some great ways to think about and approach um, our position and our our part that we play in in the world today. So you just referenced um, the first step, which was dead asleep. Um, just briefly, what would you kind of describe uh, someone who is on that first step of the awareness ladder? What is what does dead asleep mean? Yeah, there's a. <laughs> There's a very similar term for people who don't have any objective understanding of the world in occultism, and they're called the unbegun or the dead. Uh, and it's this notion that you haven't even started the journey. Everything is black and white. You're still embedded in these sort of dialectics and very limited contexts. Uh, you're just kind of 
you're spinning in a very tight circle and um your level of focus will be very ineffective it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be superficial i think but um there's just no depth to a person's awareness of the fundamental problems or the sort of underlying laws of of nature and reality that are sort of the causal factors of where we are much less that they're so if, if you're not aware of those, you can't even begin to detect some of the problems. So, yeah, it's kind of the head in the sand. I, I don't think it's necessarily outright denial because that implies you have some awareness. But ignorance is, I think, more, more akin to that because you're you're aware that you don't know. Not, not everyone, I guess, the, I think the important distinction there is to make is uh, between nescience and ignorance. So if you're nescient, you don't actually know that you don't know something. But if you're ignorant, it means that you know that you could go out and find the information, but you choose not to. And so there's a there's a level of moral complacency to ignorance that I think, you know, doesn't necessarily apply to some jungle tribe in Africa that's managed to insulate itself from systemic issues. They can't make the same choices because they don't have the same level of awareness. I, I don't think that's necessarily who we're referring to. It's uh, it's this sort of spectrum of ignorance, denial, and nescience that makes people just stage one. Yeah, I know that Paul indicates he thinks 90% of people are in that first stage. I don't know how you would go about actually quantifying that, but it's interesting that the next step is awareness of one fundamental problem. And so you get somebody who all of a sudden becomes aware of climate change or peak oil or overpopulation or whatever it is, and they kind of get fixated on that one problem, but that's as far as they go in step number two. I'm curious from your perspective where you've been so exposed to so many people and conversations across different levels of awareness, what what do you see or think of most when you see people that have just kind of this stage two awareness of one fundamental problem without the, the additional complexities? I think it's harder these days to be so unipolarly focused because... I, you know, but I imagine when Paul wrote this almost 10 years ago, I think, uh, there, there was still this great upswell of the sharing of information in terms of the internet and systemic awareness, which isn't to diminish all of the people within the environmental space. I mean, even in the seventies that were discussing a lot of these issues, but I think now it's a it's a little harder as we're experiencing systemic pressures and information is so readily available. Uh, I think it ends up being more of a diffusion uh, where people are like they are cursorily aware. You know, when when we say they're aware in the context of these steps, it means that they're invested in understanding that particular problem. I think people they are likely to frame things through one they'll favor one particular window whatever that particular context is. And more often than not, they're usually motivated by whatever feeds or can rest on some aspect of their own identity. So, you know, if they're a minority that's experienced racism uh, throughout their entire life and have taken steps in terms of activism and understanding and being active and trying to solve that issue, it might influence their other ways of thinking about other problems. But not every problem is necessarily the same since I think the mechanisms through which you can affect racism are different than how you might affect something like if you're politically active statism, if you're say a voluntarist or an anarchist or, or even climate change, because it is such a global, which isn't to say racism isn't global. It's just that there are 
different complex systems underpinning those particular systemic issues. So uh, I, th- I think you get more focus probably in the more social issues because uh, those are the ones that I think speak more time more to people's individual identity. It doesn't mean that they're not relevant or that people can't have additional frames. It's just that I think those are more common if someone's going to be focusing on one fundamental problem. Climate change seems like it's become more more primary, but it's yeah, it's difficult to push against. I think there are, there are a lot of versions of that, and it's there are now communities. It seems like, for example, like Extinction Rebellion, that have a built-in awareness of some interconnection just by the nature of uh, what they're looking to accomplish and the things that they're trying to point out. I don't, maybe not necessarily in the terms of how they act on them, you know, uh, but. Uh, I think that's probably more than enough I could say in terms of generalizing how everyone views reality. Yeah, it makes sense um, that the further along we go down this collapse pathway, the more people's eyes are going to be opened up to to more than just one singular issue, um, simply because we have more than one large issue happening at any one time. Um, and that's really been sort of a big change, I think, in these last couple of years. And so then that kind of takes us to that step three in this ladder is instead of just being aware of a singular issue, it's when you open up and realize that that we face a lot of serious issues. But unlike step four, you don't yet realize that they're all interconnected. Go ahead. I think yeah. some people might gravitate towards the issues that have more nuance. So, for example, you might move from you know wanting to get marijuana legalized to seeing the mechanisms of the political system in your particular country and financial incentives or how lobbying works and then the nature of how money is created and then just the general impressions of how the actual hegemony of global power is constructed because it's significantly obfuscated i think in some ways it's not really i think there are a very visible components but there are there are other aspects i think that uh by the very nature i mean not everyone gets to hear everything that goes on or who exactly is doing what for whom or has particular leverages or motivations and even necessarily all the players the pieces on the board so there i think historically have been people or groups or just particular subjects that act as kind of uh, contexts where people can be exposed to a lot of those things, but it's it's complicated since um, it's just difficult to gauge how deep of awareness we would identify someone as having met or where they're going to rest their understanding. Because I think I mean, everyone starts from somewhere, and all, if we're talking about complex systems and the sort of interchange, it's just it's very rare for for people to have a refined deep or sophisticated understanding of even two systems and be able to communicate that well, like at a very, at a very significant level. I think the people that do are, we have examples of people like that in the space. I think people like Chris Martinson and Nate Hagens, I would say, because they also have a background in finance. And like Nate, for example, has a, I think a degree in environmental science. If I'm, I'm not, I, he has a background in environmentalism and economics, but also as an educator. So his ability to communicate, his understanding of both of those subjects is just incredibly rare. And there's only really two things, even though they're uh, deeply, I think, embedded at the root of the tree of a lot of systemic issues. The I think the the political issues are kind of the general inroad. There's a, there's so much tribalism that's built into our morality, whether it's 
defined by our religion, our cosmology, or the political party that, or you know, the version of science that we agree upon. It, I think, that's where people are kind of forced. They're kind of confronted with the sort of dominant tribes in the particular space, and um, those are all difficult to snuff out because. There seems to be pressure from the corporate media to keep the spectrum of debate minimized and manageable in such a way as to compress people into particular camps. Uh, and I think people are receptive to that since it just makes it easier to identify a threat or an ally, even if it's incredibly superficial and unnuanced in a lot of cases. And it, even if most people are red or blue, right? Like, or some shade of that, depending on the specific issue you're, you're trying to address. It's unfortunately like, like there's almost like a, yeah, like it, it just breeds kind of this sort of, I think, nationalism or uh, limited awareness. So you, you can see the interconnection and you can work within a spectrum of problems and issues, but you're not necessarily addressing the nature of those interconnections and, and, and actively prioritizing uh, successfully what the problems are, where you can have the biggest impact and where people are making uh, biggest mistakes. It seems like the transition between number three and number four is kind of a smooth one because it's really hard to gain an actual understanding of multiple different issues and not start to see how they have interplay, how they interconnect. Like you said, you know, it just, it just goes from one thing to another, and pretty soon you're at, like, the very root of all these problems. So I, I can see how that's a thing. But going from four to five, so four is then becoming aware of the interconnectedness of all the problems. But then five is awareness that the predicament actually encompasses all aspects of your life. And I think this is where Paul talks about, for him, things started to get really dark um, because he suddenly realized that there was no really there's no ability to disconnect yourself from the very systems and the very things that are causing the problems in the first place. I don't think the, yeah, I don't, I don't think the nuance of how a person actually becomes aware of that is really easy to generalize because I think there's a sort of reconciliation with the entirety of the human experience that is necessary. There's, there's sort of a, transformation or dust kind of thing that occurs where depending on how much a person is invested in a particular understanding reality or future it can become a whole spectrum of things can happen it could it could be obliterated it could become fractured it's rare that people go in with sort of the correct version that is then elevated um maybe if someone has been experiencing or building on an awareness from an early age, I think some people, they don't necessarily have as punctuated experiences of that transition. I I managed to experience some of that, which isn't to say that I have some deep uh, third-eye, mind-blowing perspective. It's just that my particular experience of collapse awareness wasn't as punctuated because I feel like I was exposed to a particular set of things at an, a consistent and early enough age that my sort of cosmological or emotional or moral grapplings with the implications of something like collective mortality and collapse happen just happened very early on. So, you know, depending on the level of existential crises or ego death or just generalized trauma, you're exposed to, you're afforded opportunities to build a sort of resiliency or adaptability to framing some of these things. And it's, 
it isn't the same, I think, because for everyone necessarily, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say I have a solution to it. It's just that, um, yeah, it's so, it's just so deeply rooted in our experience of what is and why we're here that if you can't reconcile that, I would imagine you kind of fall off the boat or you, you wallow in that vacuum for quite a while and you may, you do or you don't come out. And there's, there's a weird transition and, uh, Fortunately, that you know, there are people like Michael. I think that's we mentioned his podcast earlier. It's kind of what he's exploring, or one of the one of the primary questions that he asks everyone is, you know, and it's one that I ask everyone that I meet in the space is, you know, how did you become aware of this subject? And it really, you know, what are the punctuated components or aspects of that? And when then, where are you now? And what are your what are your conceptions of the future? Because that's it's not necessarily representative of where you are in this scale of awareness. It's just more, I think, indicative of. Um, but more totality of your experience and um, all of the really significant and individualized components that just they're valuable like to everyone because it's how do we navigate the awareness of these issues? Um, not everyone's comfortable waking up in some Lovecraftian nightmare every morning. So um, maybe that's your aesthetic. I don't know. Um, but there, like there, the gradations of that. Um, there are plenty of days where I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Like. Uh, um, yeah, it's a weird, uh, choose your own adventure. Other times it just seems, yeah, like you can't get through the fog or you're just kind of waiting for either shoot a drop. So, Hey, there's new, I think I'm generalizing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that particular aspect too. Well, I'll just say in response to that, I think you're spot on. There's so many different gradations, so many different variations in the way that people cope with and understand and, and can even fall within that same level five category one thing I think is really interesting in Paul's description of it, there's one sentence where he says, the very concept of a solution is seen through and cast aside as a waste of effort. And I think there can be a number of different people who have an awareness that the, that the predicament encompasses all aspects of life. But person A sees an eventual outcome that's much more severe or much more negative than person B uh, there's different levels of hope within that. And so um, to say that somebody completely casts aside any concept of a solution as a waste of effort makes me think there's a lot of different nuances even within that one statement. And I think, you know, we talked earlier about how we kind of want to put people in a box and people want to box up each other in, in these blanket statements. And Paul recognizes that this is a very rough idea of where people might fall along a spectrum, right? The, the ladder of awareness is not step one, step two, step three. It is a spectrum that you can be anywhere along, along the way. And um, so by talking about these different steps, we're obviously not trying to say that everybody falls within one and anyone that's in that one step is the same as everybody else. There is so much nuance. There's so much to, to be said around the differences, the way people think, emotions versus logic and, and all of those different ideas. Um, maybe to end here with these last couple minutes, I just thought it'd be interesting to talk about Paul's idea of um, the inner path versus the outer path for sort of finding a way to cope. Um, he says, if you don't pick one of these paths, you're going to have a really hard time that eventually um, you just break down to a point where, like you said, Michael, that you're, you're in this vacuum um, and you spiral. But in his words, you know, he's talking about the outer path and he says concerns about adaptation and local resilience move into the foreground as exemplified by the transition network and permaculture movement. 
To those on the outer path, community building and local sustainability initiatives will have great appeal. So it's this more sort of action-based attempt at helping a community become resilient and building up relationships with other people in an effort to to have the best outcome possible. And that sort of action leads these people to feel some order of fulfillment and maybe to give some degree of, of an idea of a hopeful future. I don't know if you agree with that or what you'd say about, about the outer path. Yeah, I think this is kind of where Paul, um, it's unreasonable to expect him to unearth incredibly complex model for this particular stage or response. And I think the more useful examples are actually in spiral dynamics and integral theory. Those are models for the evolutionary development of individuals and societies. And we're talking about the stage of awareness in terms of the context of a particular thing. This is something that's far more inclusive and uh, applies to a lot more contexts. But the the upper layers of that of those models, I think, have far more complexity and relevancy in terms of actually making what is essentially kind of a binary distinction here. Like the notion that we really only have two paths and they really, one only applies to the outer world and one only applies to the inner world, I think is, um, it, we, we can have a conversation around it. I think, uh, I just think I would behoove anyone to think that that is, uh, really an effective modeling. I think there's, to say that I think there is some incredible, uh, development and, things that have come out of integral theory and spiral dynamics that are very, very relevant to this, this particular part that we're discussing. And I think you could have very, you know, if you could just corner Ken Wilber into a, you know, in a room and ask him to frame everything in the context of collapse, you'd get just an amazing conversation. I know Dowd interviewed him many years ago, but I haven't seen a recent interview with him that particularly does that, but you can absolutely apply those models to all sorts of things. Um, yeah, it's this notion that there are components of our actions and opportunities that occur, you know, that affect more us or more everyone else. And it's a critical distinction to make because I think most people don't really have a sense of where those lines should be drawn. I think some people are lacking in certain things. Like it's hard to do the outer work if you don't have a foundational basis of some sort of inner work right that you've done and in, in the same way you can try to leverage all of these external contexts to ignore or quiet the sort of issues or delinquencies in your inner dimensions you know uh, ideally we're taking a holistic approach we're aware of where we can make the most impact but we're taking care of ourselves and we're very intentionally gauging our potentials and the challenges that we want to face and that we're inviting in each moment and I mean, I'm really just describing the human experience, but like you're, you're doing it, you're trying to frame like, how do you, how do you move forward with this awareness? I think you're, you're sort of required to figure out in addition to the distinctions of what, where are the problems in terms of predicaments and things that have solutions, right? Cause one, you can only mitigate the other one you can potentially solve. And the other ones, I think you you have to have a moral capacity to build a moral framework to confront those things because they're very significant moral challenges that are inherent to all of those and that will become increasingly common everywhere. Do I give that person food that I may or may not need to survive because I only have so much? And that's an extreme example, but like in a world where the resources are diminishing, right? What 
opportunities can I afford others that make sense that are actually helping them and they're not harming me significantly, right? And how can I not be moral complicit in denying people opportunities just because I'm being selfish? Because the 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 path of least resistance is to hide in your box and only get the superficial gleaming of people, you know, don't don't like just don't go too far down the street because there's bad things over there. Yeah, absolutely. Um there's definitely a lot of a lot of, like you just said, and like we've kind of been the theme of this episode, so much nuance in, in all of this. You can't label everyone in, in a really general way. I think you were correct in, in, in saying that, you know, there's this inner and outer path. Um, it's an oversimplification. And the, the best thing is that we have some of both. And we have to find a way to find some sort of inner peace, um, you know, within ourselves, that inner motivation. And like you talked about morality, um, a reason for for having that outer strength as well. And eventually I think we, you're right that we will all be sort of forced to come together. We're going to rely on each other. Um, so the most that we can practice that now, the more that we can come to that inner peace, uh, and practice having that, the sort of collaboration in an outward manner, the better off we'll be as we kind of go through this collapse period over the next several decades together. Well, Michael, from your Time as a moderator on our collapse um, to just what I've gleaned from this conversation. It's apparent that you highly value dialogue and just people coming together, having openness to speak with each other, even when there's disagreements. Um, and that that's how, that's how community happens. And so I'm really grateful for the time that you've spent with us to have this dialogue, um, to get to know you a little better and for, you know, some of the members of our collapse to get to know you a little better as well. So appreciate you being here and hopefully we'll get to have you back on sometime absolutely thank you so much for the opportunity guys even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.